Lord, we are so thankful that you have chosen to reveal your word to us. We ask, Lord, that now having listened to it read, that we would have confidence that you want to teach us and you want to shape us and you want to mold us through the ministry of the word this morning. So, Lord, allow us to have hearts that are ready, teachable, and eager to learn. Allow me to be your messenger. Allow me to uh, simply speak your truth that is revealed in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that is done today. Have your way with us, we plead, for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by saying, well done um, to Lauren. Um, I think you don't have to worry about reading any other portion of Scripture ever again. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we fear reading the Word of God, and yet, friends, it is so critically important that we are people who are willing to read it and learning to read it. And uh, I want to thank all of you who participate in that ministry. Well, one of the questions that has challenged the church through the years is this. Is the Bible actually really relevant? I mean, it can be stated in a number of ways. Does the Bible really speak to the issues and struggles that we face today? Can we honestly turn to the Bible and gain an understanding of the, the world in which we live? Since the Bible is such a, an ancient document, how can it say anything that will have lasting impact for people like us who are living in the 21st century? These are all questions and thoughts and ideas that, that are posed out there because the Bible is not often considered to be a relevant book. And in my experience in particular in ministry in the church, this is a struggle for youth pastors because they always want to be relevant. They always want to connect where these kids are. And so they try and take the Word of God in some way, shape, or form and make it relevant. This is also a problem for those churches that want to be hip and cool and trendy in our present day because they want to be relevant. And so there's a sense in which they want to somehow make the Word of God relevant. I recently had a conversation with a pastor and we were discussing the marks of a faithful sermon. And his first point was this, that the sermon is relevant. And he confessed to me, he said, said you know, Rod, he said, there are just some passages in the Bible that are just not relevant for today. And he said, take, for example, the book of Nehemiah. He says, there's, there's portions of the book of Nehemiah that, that say nothing for us today. So friends, for the last 14 weeks, we have been working through an irrelevant book of the Bible, according to him. Now, I sympathize to some degree with where he was coming from. There are portions of scripture where you're asking yourself, how is this relevant? How does this speak to us? The question is, what do we do with passages like 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable 
for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's, it's all of Scripture is profitable. Or how about when he talks about not, not withholding any of the Scripture, but coming with the, the whole counsel of God? Or how about when he speaks to, to Timothy or to Titus, and he's saying, preach the word. He's not talking just about the word that is relevant, but he's talking about preaching the actual word. I mean, he doesn't say... Just pick up your Bible and, and only use those passages that may connect with your audience. Now here, friends, we need to understand this. The Bible is always relevant. I say that again. The Bible is always relevant. We don't need to make it relevant. We just need to determine how it's relevant and show how it's relevant. It is relevant. We're here to, to honor the word of God that he has so graciously revealed to us by saying, God, feed us with this section of scripture. And so that, my friends, is the case before us today. We, we read a portion of scripture where probably you're saying, all right, what is Pastor Rod going to do with this? Because this section basically is Four lists of names with a little bit of explanation here and there. And this is the kind of passage where you just kind of typically read and then you're like, well, I don't even read it. You just kind of like, oh, I'm going to skim over this. I want to get to the actual na narration of the story. And in doing that, you miss what God is choosing to reveal to us. So one and a half chapters here of, of lists and names and places for us. But we, we don't want to pass over this section because if we do, we will miss the beauty of the truth of God that is revealed to us. So since the Bible is always relevant, we need to ask how it is relevant. Now friends, we cannot excuse our unwillingness to ask that question based on our laziness or simply to say, well, you know, I don't have the skills to know how to study the Bible. That's why we want to be a church that is training people to actually grasp how do you study the Bible so that when you're reading it yourself, you can say, aha, I'm going to press on here. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to see how it connects. Now, in order to approach this section of Scripture, chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 26, we need to see the greater context of what's going on. And so it's important to be reminded of how this book is unfolding. Chapters 1 through 7 talks about the rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah coming back, having a burden uh, of the people and their condition and the walls, stirs the people up, uh, up with a promise of God that is rooted in the Mosaic Covenant and says, we can do this, God is calling us to this, and we're going to rebuild this wall, and in, what, 53 days, the walls are built. And then we looked at the next section, which would be verses 8 through 10, and there, in that section, we see this corporate revival taking place. It begins with the reading of the word. And having had the word read and explained and applied, the people are convicted of their sin, and they confess to God. They repent of their sin, and we finally see them coming to God in this corporate covenant, a renewal of a covenant with God. It's a beautiful picture. A time of great revival of the people of God. And that's where we left off last week. So now that this, is right, this revival has taken place, life must go on. <laughs> Hear this. We are not 
going to live our lives perpetually in a revival. If that were true, it wouldn't be a revival, right? But sometimes we feel like, well, I just want all these, you know, these high emotional, spiritual experiences. But that's not where life is really lived. Life is lived in the normal, mundane avenues of life. You have to go to work. Your kids have to go to school. You've got to cut the grass. All right? You've got to feed the dog. These are all things you have to do. It's mundane life. But yet, you live your life out of these times of refreshment and revival that God has brought you to. Sometimes there are moments in a lifetime. Sometimes there are just regular activities in the course of a year, depending on at what level. But even today, as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's a mechanism to bring you back to the place of saying, the gospel is central. But you still have to live. And what we have here before us today is the, the people of God living out their commitment to God. There's no wow factor here. This is pretty mundane. This is pretty normal in the life of a believer. But we live out of the gospel. We live out of these times of revival and refreshment. So we want to consider how the people of Israel choose to live their life now that they've been restored and the city is protected. Now certainly we want to continue to long for revival in our hearts. We don't want to you know, drift off, and that's part of the purpose of this, this section. We want to pray for it. We want to continue in it. We want to be fueled by it. But as I mentioned, true revival is not perpetual. So here we want to begin by taking a look at how they live out, how they press on, we might want to say, in this or out of this renewed commitment to God. So let's think through now this section of Scripture. I'll just kind of give you the highlights here. We're going to look at it in three different sections, all having to do with location. We're going to begin with the city. I'll call it a holy city. Then we're going to move to the land, which I will call the promised land, identified here as the villages and towns. And then it shifts focus from the city to the land to the temple, which is going to be that place of worship where restored worship is taking place. And, and as we look at those different locations, we're going to see what God is pressing in on us from the perspective of how we are then to live out of this, this renewed relationship with him. And I'll think you, uh, you'll see it unfold very, very simply and very, very clearly. So first of all, we have here a holy city, a holy city. And that, that comes actually from the text, verse, verse 1 and verse 18. It identifies Jerusalem as this holy city. But hear this, um, Jerusalem is beginning to take shape. It is becoming the heart of this region. This is... The, the, the place where the walls were built, the, the temple had been restored, not fully, but enough and sufficiently so that uh, temple ministry could go on. But a holy city is not worth much if it is an empty city. <laughs> there have to be people living in the city. There needs to be life happening. There needs to be a thriving populace there. So the question is, who will be in the city? Who will live in the city? How will you get the privilege to be a part of those chosen to live in the city? That's what is 
the challenge here. That is what the, the narrator is letting us see as he unfolds this section. Now notice we begin in verse 1. In verse 1, the leaders set the example. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you just think about you know, our, our state. Where do our leaders live? Well, part-time at least. Sacramento, or somewhere around Sacramento. Why? Because that's where they have to be in order to run the government and talk about things relating to the government. It's natural they would live there. If you are a, you know, a senator or a congressman for our country, yeah, you'll have a home probably in your state, but you'll also have a residence that is near Washington, D.C. You want to be around government there. It makes sense that the civic leaders at that particular point in time are going to live in that city. But they, they, they take their leadership responsibility, and they are already living in the city. Now just think about this. When Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he took responsibility of being governor, but he also set an example by not lording it over the people, right? Remember that? Chapter 5? He wouldn't lord it over them, and he wouldn't lay heavy burdens on the people, but only took the food that was necessary to do what he needed to do. But he took ownership of that responsibility. Here the leaders are taking ownership of their responsibility. They're going to live in the city. So we get that. That makes sense. But the next part here is maybe where we're starting to scratch our heads. The rest of the people, the text says, cast lots. So how would the rest of the people the ordinary citizens be selected to live in the holy city. Well, they would cast lots. Notice what it says. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring out of ten to live in the city, one out of ten to live in the city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Now, when you think about casting lots, sometimes you, you kind of wander off into things like, you know, Russian roulette or throwing the, the dice, and it's kind of like chance, and, you know, it's kind of a, 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 kind of a scary thing. But... But understand that the people functioned by casting lots. They determined the will of God. This was an Old Testament mechanism that God had put in place to discern his will. It seems kind of strange to us because we're far removed from it, but this was something that he instituted. And so you'll see it throughout the Old Testament in particular. What you'll find, for example, is that the lots were used... Um, many times to determine who was going to be getting a certain portion of the land. So it was used to divide the land of the inheritance. It was also used as a mechanism to determine who the king would be. It was also used to determine who was the guilty party. Remember Achan? Right? Remember the story of Jonathan, how lots were cast to determine who was the one that didn't do what they were supposed to do? God uses the lots to help Part people, divide things to explain his will. Another way that it was used was to, to cast lots to determine which animal was going to be sacrificed. And there's one situation where one animal is taken for sacrifice, and animal, another animal is set free and goes off into the wilderness. All right, that's the scapegoat. But the reality is that scapegoat that goes off in the wilderness was going to be eaten by the wolves and all that kind of stuff too, right? The point is, the lot was cast to determine which one. So it's, it was a mechanism that God had instituted to discern his will. In fact, Proverbs 18, 18 says, The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. 
So don't think of this as somehow kind of mystical or pagan. This was central to what was going on in the economy of Israel that day. God revealed his will through the lot. Now, having said that, here in Nehemiah 11.1, we see that the lot is cast to determine who would live in the city. And it tells us there that one out of ten would be welcomed into the holy city, and nine out of ten would remain in the other towns. Now, your initial reading of this is like, oh, all the focus has been on the city, and the walls are built, and the gates are secure, and wow, Jerusalem is now this place, and wouldn't they just be bustling to get into the city? And the answer is what? No. This was not a lot cast to say, you can't live in the city. This was a lot cast saying, you are drafted to live into the city. But notice what it said. Notice how they responded. It says, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Those who received the lot, who were drafted, so to speak, by God, when God reveals his will, willingly went into the city. Where do you think they ultimately wanted to go? They wanted to go to the land of promise, which we will get to. When your ancestors have been given a piece of property and now you're back in the land, you're probably eager to get back there. Probably not eager to go into the city. The walls were built, but the houses may not have been. It was still rabble. There was still work to be done. This is not like living out on a farm and you know, having all these different things that are out there. This is city life. This is completely different. And verses 4 through 24 reveal for us those people who were selected and went willingly to resettle in the city. Just notice that the people of Israel divided into two groups. You have Judah and Benjamin that are mentioned there. You have the priests. This is not all of them. This is just one out of ten of them. And you have the Levites. You have the gatekeepers. You have the temple servants. So, so there is this mechanism for revealing God's will, and the people were responding willingly in going to live into the city. So what's at the heart of verses 1 through 24? It's this, that life following revival and reconciliation with your covenant God is lived out by willingly submitting to God's purposes and plan. When you have been restored to God... He then has freedom to dictate what you should do. His will becomes central. Friends, this is one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a Christian. This is one of the hallmarks of how we live our lives for his glory. We submit to God's plan. How? Willingly. We may not like it initially. It may not necessarily be what we were pursuing but we submit to it. Have you ever had any changes in your career path? Have you ever had any challenges, maybe because you had a loved one who God took home? Or maybe your finances seem to be dissipating and you can't get that thing, or maybe you can't stay in the home that you wanted to stay in. You had a plan, you had a will, but God revealed other plans, other wills. Are you submissive to his will? Are you willing to do what he is revealing? 
So we willingly humble ourselves and submit ourselves to his plan. And friends, that is, that is part of who we are as followers of Christ. Now, let's think about this then from the perspective of the will of God. There's the simple obedience to his revealed will, right? I mean, we, we, there, there, we don't have to look too far to find out what God's will is because God has revealed his will in the pages of Scripture. So we can say this, from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, although there's plenty more commandments in the Old Testament, but from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament that communicate in seed form the will of God for his covenant people to the, the hard sayings of Jesus that we find in the Gospels when he speaks not only to, to those who are Jews, but also Pharisees and Sadducees who are in rebellion against the God of Israel, to Paul and his commandments in the epistles to those who are believers. All of these are clear, revealed commandments given to us in the pages of Scripture, which God expects us then to submit to willingly. So as a follower of Christ, when you see God speak and communicate a command, and in particular, as we're New Testament Christians, we've got to be careful what those are, but the point is, when it's there, it's communicated to us so that we can be obedient to it. And that obedience, as a child of God, is something that we should be doing willingly. There's also what we might want to call submission to his perceived will, because not all of life is clear-cut, is it? We don't have the lot anymore. Sometimes you would love it, right? All right, I have a choice. God, all right, three options here. I'm going to you know, throw the, the, the lot down. There were some stones, and there was, I don't know the exact way it was used, but some way in the stones to determine you know, yes or no or whatever it was. And it would be, be helpful to have you know, those in your pocket and just you know, throughout the day, it's just like throw them out there. Okay, boom, that's what he wants me to do. But that's not how it works anymore. How God works now is by means of the Holy Spirit, who is at work through his word. So what we have is we have the word of God that we need to be obedient to, but then when we come to things that, I don't want to say they're gray areas, but they're areas where we have to apply God's word, we have the Holy Spirit that helps us then to take the word of God in principle form so that we can apply it to that particular situation to say, aha, now I have a better understanding of what following the will of God looks like. So let me give you a few examples. Life is full of difficult questions. Should I take that new job that I'm being offered that will give me a greater income but likely demand more of me so that I won't be able to spend as much time with family or ministry with my church? It's a tough question. How do you answer that? You apply the word of God with the strength of the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom, to give you discernment, should I prioritize my responsibilities to care for my aging parents to, to the point that I'm willing to uproot my personal family and find a new home church and seek to live for God in a new location? You're not just going to open God's word and say, boom, here's a verse that tells me what to do. It's going to mean spending time in the word of God, allowing the truth of the word of God to, to, to rise and the Holy Spirit working with that to give you wisdom, to give you insight, to give you clarity to what your responsibilities are, to what he is calling you to do. Should I remain in school or leave work to go to school so that I can have a degree that would land me the opportunity of higher paying job in the future? Tough question. 
Again, you're not just going to open the Bible and say, oh, there's a verse. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to nurse the Word of God, so to speak. Not to make it say something you want it to say, but you're going to have to kind of tease out, what, is, what does God want me to see here? What's important for, for me right now? And, and say, Holy Spirit, teach me, show me, reveal it to me. Should I say yes to missions? To study for ministry, to, to take my family to the hard places and to reach people with the gospel. Again, you're not going to find a verse that says, you know, Rod, go to Dijibute. You're not going to find it. But God does speak through his word. And the counsel of the Holy Spirit through the Word, as well as the body of Christ and the, the, the multitude of godly counselors that he has put in your life. You take all those things, but the issue isn't so much always, do I know God's will? The issue that's really pressing from this text is this, am I willing to be submissive to it? God revealed his will. One out of every ten, you're going to go live in the city. Are you willing to go. Now, these are all hard questions. But we can pursue those questions with God's strength. So friends, that is the, the mark of a revived believer who wants to press on in the glory of God. They are willing to be drafted by God and his word into his plan. Even if it means change even if it means uprooting your family, even if it means going to a place that is going to be different, even if it means leaving your extended family and the people you love or getting a new job, or even if it means saying no to that dream that you had but staying where you are. Are you willing to be submissive to do his will? Pressing on doesn't necessarily mean making huge family dynamic paradigm shifts it simply means taking ownership of your God-given responsibilities and submitting yourself to the plan of God for your life. It means having a desire to live with integrity before all, to be faithful as an employee at work, to, to be kind and compassionate to those who are suffering, to love your wife or your husband with a deep passion, with, to love your children so much that you're willing to discipline them and train them and to raise them up in the fear of God. Now, even Jesus, with the weighty prospect of the cross, humbled himself to the divine plan, which he was a part of, by saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And hear this. It wasn't Jesus giving up on the plan, but in his humanity, understanding the weight of what he was going to do. But he pressed on to say, I am submitting to the divine plan to go to the cross. He did it willingly. Now we've looked at then how, how chapters, let me say, 8 through 10 move us to say, okay, based on that, that revival, God, I want to listen to your will. I want to follow your will. But now we want to move from the will of God to what I'm calling the promises of God. Here we have a promised land. A promised land. Judah, it was still called them, but it was the reference that was used back in that day by the Persians to talk about the greater area around Jerusalem. It was surrounded to the north by Samaria, 
the south by Edomia, the Edomites. But what's significant about what we find recorded in these few verses is that the locations that are mentioned actually go beyond the boundaries of historic Judah and historic Benjamin. In fact, they are considerably farther. Just focus, if you would, here just a little bit um, at verse 25 or verse 28 or verse 30. Kiriath Arba, Ziklag, Beersheba. These are all areas in Judah. Bethel, Michmash, Lod, Ono. Those are all areas up toward Benjamin, but even west of Benjamin, over to the west, more near the ocean. This is, therefore, friends, a beginning of the return for many families to the land of their inheritance. It even says that in the text as it's listing people who are going into the city. It said some people stayed because they were going into the land of their inheritance. Now, although they lived as citizens in the land that belonged to Persia, they could still move around in Judah and call it home. Here we have a hint of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham in the geography of Judah. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but, um, well, I, I, you know, I was born and raised in another country, and I, for, my formative years were in England, and a few years ago, for my 25th anniversary, my wife and I took a trip to England. We had a great time. Uh, we spent half of it in the, the countryside uh, in a place called Bath, and then Bath, right? And then the Cotswolds, which is west of London, west of Oxford, if you have any ge- geography, a geography of, of, of England at all. But then we also went into London for about six days. But in the process of that, there was one thing that we had to do. We had to go back to the town that I grew up in. It's like, we got at least we're going to drive through there. So we went there, and the first place we went to was my high school. And it had changed considerably, but the, the, the core of it was still there. And I stood outside of it. And as I'm standing there, I'm thinking about, I'm hearing the voices of my friends, right? I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, of activity that's taken place in and around. I'm reminded of the, 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 the black you know, coats that we had to wear with the black pants and the gray sweaters and the, the yellow black striped tie that sometimes we would tie really tight and high or really, really long because we wanted to stay within the parameters, but we wanted to be rebellious, you know what I'm saying? So you just kind of stretch it that way. Um, I just remember all the activity, all the life that took place there, and, and, and the memories flooded in. Then we, we went up to another place called Heatherside, which was the, 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 the subdivision that we lived in, and there was a, there was a field up there, and there was a, a news agent, or a place where you could get candy called Martin's. It was still there. And I just reminded of all those times of eating wine gums and black licorice and things like that with my friends, and we would hang out there almost every day after school. And again, all these memories come back, but there was one other place that I had to go to. Can you guess where it was? My old house. So we drove to where my old house was. It's a little smaller than I remember it, but um, still just, you know, I, I'm parked in front of it, and people probably thought we were stalking them or something like that, you know, but I'm out there, and I'm looking, and Again, I'm just reminded of all the things that took place in that home and uh, all the skateboarding I did, all the accidents that happened through broken windows and the wall that I used to kick the soccer ball on over and over and over and over again. You know, all these things are coming back to me. There's something 
about going back to that place that is not just nostalgic, but it's meaningful. Now remember, these people and their ancestors were taken out of the land. But now, they're coming back. And so it's not surprising that there were those that even though they were drafted to live in the city, actually wanted to go back because these people are going back to the towns and the villages that were part of the land of promise of their families. I mean, you would want to go back there too. You would want to experience what it was like to to step back into that village and know this is where, you know, great-grandma was born. This is their old farm. These actually might be cows that descended from their cows. I mean, this was exciting for them. So you can imagine the driving force that pushed the people into the land of promise. It wasn't quite the same. It wasn't the land of former glory under David and Solomon. It wasn't a land free of oppressors. It wasn't the land that went from Dan to Beersheba. But it was home. Oh, the boundary may not have exactly been the same, but it was actually considerably larger than even the tribes of Judah and Benjamin at that point in time. This is pretty significant. And it was a promise that Nehemiah was reminded of that fueled his burden for the land and for the people recorded for us in chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. Turn back there. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Just, just remember what God promised in the Mosaic Covenant, which now Nehemiah is leaning on as he's thinking through what God wants him to do with Jerusalem. He's praying now. Remember the word that you, God, commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's what happened to them. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're uh, though your outcasts are under the farther skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. This wasn't just simply relocation. This was going home. They're in the land, the land that God had promised them. And as they're walking toward those villages, I'm sure they're thinking about the Mosaic Covenant. They've just gone through a return to God in that revival. And now they're going to resettle the land, just like he said they would do if they returned to him. Now, friends, God hadn't abandoned his covenant promise to Abraham or to Moses or to his people here. This brings us then to the second hallmark of God's people to press on after revival. They press on fully and eagerly, trusting in the promises of God. Now, the problem with me saying that is that the idea of trusting in the promises of God has become so trite and Christian-esque that it's lost its meaning, it's lost its power, it's lost its beauty. Oh, just trust in the promises of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah. 
No, we don't know that unless we're pressing into the promises of God. Here, they're pressing in because they're living it. They're touching it. They're experiencing it. God grips you with his word. He reveals to you your sin. You come humbly before God. You confess and repent of your sin. You are fully restored back to God because of his faithfulness. Now what do you do? You submit to his plan willingly, and you trust his promises eagerly. Just imagine what life would be like if God didn't keep his promises. Now, if you're like me, you fight to try and keep the promises that you make. All right? I'm thankful for technology. I have Todoist, which gives me a Todoist list. I have Google Calendar, so I can write down all appointments I have. We have email. I have reminders galore. You know, my phone, it's not messages I'm getting. It's reminders. You got to do this. You got to do this. And then I walk in at home, and my wife says, hey, Rod, did you get the milk I asked you to get? And it's like, ah, no. And I hang my head in shame, and I kick the cat, which is why we have cats in the first place, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You and I are flawed when it comes to keeping promises. But God is not. He always does what he says. What he communicates to us is what will take place. He is not fickle. He's not playing around. He keeps his word. G. Campbell Morgan was a pastor in London, and he was one day visiting with a, an elderly lady. She was about 85 years old and couldn't hear too well, but he went to her home and visited with her, and he was reading Scripture, and he was reading Matthew 28, and it's the, the part where it talks about the Great Commission, and it ends with, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he turns to her and says, isn't that such a great promise? And she says, that's not a promise. That's a fact. Now, guys, hear this. The word promise may have lost its power. But when God has a promise, it is a fact. A fact is something that is absolutely certain and truthful. You cannot contest the reality of its truthfulness. In fact, I remember going to a place in Marshall, Michigan. It was a restaurant, and on the wall it had this statement. It had lots of them. This one struck me. Facts are stubborn things. God's promises, friends, are stubborn things. They are always, always, always true. Now, friends, it's important for us to realize that. When you think about God's promises as stubborn facts, you understand that you really are totally and completely forgiven if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. Did you hear that? It's a fact. 
You understand that your sins have really been cast as far as the east is from the west. And that God remembers them no more. It's a fact. You remember, you understand that you are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you will be for eternity. That's a fact. You press on knowing that God really has begun a good work in you and that he promises that he will be faithful to complete it in you. That's a fact. You have no shadow of a doubt that if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding and in all of your activity, acknowledge him that he will direct your paths. It's a fact. You're confident, you're assured that he really is preparing a home for you and me to dwell in when we arrive in heaven. Friends, it is to this final land of promise that the word of God calls our hope. See, our hope is based on a promise that is a fact. So it's no small thing to say, trust in God's promises eagerly. Because God's promises are sure, they are secure, they are fuel for living. The will of God, responding to it willingly. The promises of God, responding to them eagerly. We now move into another hallmark, another aspect of how we press on in living out of this revival, living out this renewed commitment with God. We move into this discussion here of a restored temple. What we observe here is that there is a community of believers that see the worship of God as central and important to the life of Israel. Have you noticed How much of what we've read so far involves priests and Levites, gatekeepers, temple servants? Now, put it in modern-day terms. It would be like, okay, all of you that want to live in Castro Valley, we're going to take one out of ten. All right, and there's going to be people. Then there's going to be pastors. Then there's going to be associate pastors. And then there's going to be church secretaries. And then there's going to be church bouncers, like Alex, right? It's like, how come of all this, this religious order stuff going on here? Why? Because the worship of God in the economy of Israel was central. It was important. It was purposeful. And that's what is revealed here. They prioritized the worship of God, and they were purposeful in prioritizing it. Now, I want us to pick up, first of all, um, what I'm calling the continuity of worship. You have these two lists that are going on here, verses 1 through 11, and primarily 12 through 23, maybe shy of, of 23. But first of all, you have this list of all those that, that were priests and Levites and stuff under Zerubbabel. And then from verse 12 and following, you have this second generation under um, Joachim. 
Now look at the list of the names that are listed who came with Zerubbabel. I'm not going to read them all, but just we'll pick up the first maybe five or six. Zariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Edo, Genethon. Now, just hold that thought, the, words that, the, the, the names that you just mentioned, and, and, and let your, your eye now go down to verse 12 and following. Compare that list with those who are now present with Ezra and Nehemiah years later. The house of Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Edo. See what's going on here? Those that came a generation earlier who were part of the workings of the temple as priests and as Levites, their sons have now taken up the mantle of responsibility, are in a sense continuing in their father's footsteps by being priests and Levites, gatekeepers, temple servants, and so on. There is continuity in worship going on. And behind these lists are nights and nights and weeks and years of patient teaching of children, of rearing little ones in the fear and the admonition of God, of showing them the ropes of what ministry looks like, because these are all aspects of the temple, of maybe, you know, it's bring your son to work day, you know, as they slaughter a, a, a cow or something like that, right? Not necessarily something we would be used to, but they were raising their children, in particular, raising the man to do the work that God had called their families to do. And we see it continued on here. And friends, there's a challenge for us all to consider how we then are continuing on the legacy of worship through our families. Following the same example, seeing that worship of God is not only central in Israel, but it's central in our walk with God. It's central in what it means to be the church. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You can just imagine the kind of instruction that was going on here with these fathers to their sons. The fathers were saying, listen, your ancestors were rebellious and God took them into captivity. But now, as a result of their their response to God and their humbling themselves before God, God has restored them to this city, to this land. One generation will commend your works to another. God is faithful to his covenant people. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about. God is always faithful to his covenant people. And he will restore them because he keeps his promises. So there's this continuity in worship. But notice also, as we take it, not just with this this section, but we go back over the, the whole of the text, I want you to see the responsibility of worship. There were priests, and priests were the ones that were typically responsible for the offering of the sacrifices that were going on. The Levites were those who also contributed to that, but also had other roles, administrative roles, support roles in the exercise of the temple. You have singers and choir leaders. You have gatekeepers who provided protection and order in and around the temple. 
You have temple servants that simply were there to assist in what was taking place. It just There needs to be someone who fills that capacity. So it's amazing in the economy of the people of God, there was such great responsibility to carry out the God-given ministry in the temple. It was a huge, huge, huge undertaking and involved many people, but they were committed to making sure that worship was a priority in Israel. And so what we see here is that worship for the people of God was a community affair involving many people in multiple roles. So here's what we've seen so far in chapter 11 and 12. Just, just kind of follow along either you know, by looking at the text or just listening to me, the people in various roles. And we've listed them already a little bit. There's rulers and overseers, there's priests, there's Levites, there's gatekeepers, there's temple servants, there's singers, there's choir leaders, and so on. But there are also different places where they worked. Did you catch that there were some that worked outside? And that would be outside the temple. And some that worked inside the temple. Even temples need some painting. Even temples need some repair. There, there's always around a temple the need for practical activity, whether it's the, 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 the taking care of the animals that are going to be sacrificed, feeding them, making sure they're, 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 they're taken care of well so they can be the kind of animals that will be worthy of actually being sacrificed, providing food for all those who are serving in the temple. All right, there's all these different things that have to take place, not only outside, but also inside. And the inside had more to do with the actual sacrifices, the administration within there, um, might well say the choirs, things like that. But then there's a third section here. That would be the protection that was given in the city, but beyond even their roles. I don't know if you caught this earlier in chapter 11, but it says in verse 6 that 468 sons of Judah who were valiant men. The idea of valiant men is someone who could do battle. In order for a city to be strong, it had to have valiant men. It wasn't taking all the valiant men. Again, God revealed his will through what? The lot. And this is how many valiant men came from Judah. As you read a little further down in verse 8, 928 sons of Benjamin who were men of valor. But the one that's a little surprising is down in verse 14. 128 priests who were mighty men of valor. I mean, priests could be used in battle. Let me just remind you. Priests were used, I mean this in the most accurate and appropriate way. They were used slaughtering cows. They could wield an instrument. They knew how to cut. They knew what to do. And here you have a list of 128 mighty men of valor. Priests, but who were also used, if necessary, as a means of protection for the city. And friends, isn't this just a, a beautiful foreshadowing picture of what God calls the body of Christ in the book of, uh, of Ephesians. Where, here, here's what he says, Ephesians 4, 16 and 17. We are to grow up in every way into him. Talking about the church, the body of Christ. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, it isn't just something that we do on something. Worship is not something that we just do on a, on a Sunday morning where they're gathering or even just the first part of the service. It's an attitude of the heart that is to be consistent in the soul of every believer. 
We worship God because he is worthy of our worship. In fact, the English word worship comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which means something of value, and so it means it's worth something, right? So worship means that this person or object is worth bowing down to. That's the idea behind it. So when we say we worship God, we're saying that he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of right thoughts throughout the day. He is worthy of right words as we're choosing to interact with coworkers or people that we come in contact with. He is worthy to be a part of our choices of behavior and activities. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome after 11 chapters of rich theology about God, about Christ, about the church, about our salvation, he says this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, God has called us to keep worship central, just like the people here in Nehemiah's day. So when God has gotten a hold of people and restored them to himself through confession, repentance, forgiveness, that all rests on this covenant with Jesus Christ, we can press on willingly and submit to his will. We can press on eagerly and trust in his promises. We can press on purposefully and prioritize our worship of him in our lives. There's a song that I listened to years ago when I was in college. It was by the Dan Burgess's band. I don't know if you remember them at all. But here, here's how it goes. When the valley is deep, when the mountain is steep, when the body is weary, when we stumble and fall, when the choices are hard and when we're battered and scarred, when we spend our resources, when we've given our all, in Jesus' name, we press on. In Jesus' name, we press on. Dear Lord, with the prize clear before our eyes, we find the strength to press on. See, this is what these people were doing. Revival was great. Revival is necessary. I don't want to take anything away from that, but life must still be lived. But it's lived with the will of God and the promises of God and the worship of God all being the, the fruit and the focus of that time of revival. So as we consider it for ourselves, we bring things to a conclusion here. We can say this, that God is calling us to press on because of the gospel. We're not pressing on somehow trying to work our way to heaven. We're pressing on because of what he has done for us. And the gospel fuels us to live, fuels us to submit to his will, fuels us to trust in his promises, and fuels us to say, I want to worship you, and I want to gather with people that are going to worship you. But not only does it, are we called to press on, but we're also called, and I'm going to use this expression, to press in. We press on because of the gospel. We press in 
with the gospel. And friends, that is, that is really what, what this Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate here is an opportunity for us to do. We, we, we remember, we reflect, we are restored in that process. So as we remember his work on behalf of us, we think about what he did on the cross, giving of his body, shedding his blood. But we also reflect on, on how God broke into our pagan enemy lives and breathed life into our soul. And how undeserving we were of that grace. But now we are his children. And so we, we press back in to this gospel that, that shapes us and welcomes us and nurtures us and contains us in a way so that we can be prepared for heaven. But there is a sense in which these people, not only after the revival, resettled the land but I think what's more important is that they were resettled in their souls. And friends, that what God, that's what God is calling us to do. We are to be resettled, resettled through the Lord's table back to this place where we see things as plain as they can be, that he is our great God and Savior. And we were undeserving of his grace, but he has welcomed us into his family because of what he has done for us. And we walk away fueled and resettled and reminded to live our lives according to his will, trusting in his promises, seeking to worship him in every area of our lives. Lord, help us today to consider the great privilege, Lord, of what it means to be called your children. We wander we allow our sin to take us to places, Lord, that are away from you, that we rebel against you. We are thankful, Lord, that you don't leave us there, that even in your love you, you chastise us, you can discipline us, Lord, but you, you get us back to the place where we hear your word afresh, we listen to it, we see our sin because of it, we come to you in heartfelt repentance and confession seeking to be restored back in fellowship with you. And Lord, you allow that to take place. You, you joyfully bring us to the place of, of restoration. And Lord, it doesn't end there. It continues on with life that is lived because of your gospel at work in our lives. Lord, help us not to shortchange all the benefits that you give us but to press on, living in light of your gospel, living in the strength of your gospel, and trusting in all that the gospel has provided for us. And Lord, today there are, I'm sure, some people here that are struggling with choices, with challenges, um, with painful realities in their lives, who need to hear afresh your words. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Lord, your land of promise was the land of rest. And Lord, for us, 
We rest in you, but we look forward to ultimately being in that place of rest with you in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for pursuing us. Now, Lord, help us to press on in our pursuit of you. We ask in your holy, precious name. Amen.